does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. You're listening to the best of Kevin Inquiry on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. One of the great songs of all time. From the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchigumi. Gordon Lightfoot uh, passing away yesterday. I believe 74 years old. Is that right, Mark? I think 84. Yeah, I thought 84. Or 84, sorry. The, um, the Canadian folk singer passing away yesterday. I did not realize two things about Gordon Lightfoot, who... You know, just one of the staples of like early backseat of my mom's car, driving, doing errands, getting groceries. You know, that th- that was back when WIBC was playing music. That was one of the songs you would have heard um, on the radio. But Gordon Lightfoot, his other two songs, one was Carefree Highway. And uh, until like two years ago, I always thought it was Every Highway. And it's Carefree Highway. Did not know that. And then Sundown, which is another one of his great songs. Also, I did not realize until of recent vintage that that song was written about Gordon Lightfoot's ex-girlfriend, who was the same woman that essentially gave John Belushi his fatal dose of uh, the the cocktail that that killed him, essentially. And Gordon Lightfoot wrote that song about that, and I'm like, well, that's not really an uplifter. Wow, I, I had no idea that. Yeah, Sundown. It was I quite the um, shame. yeah, quite the social media support for. Gordon Lightfoot. I, I th- yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people. I, I, I guess I would. I, this sounds bad. I would not have guessed that. I, I totally understood. I mean, I, I, I get why you would say that, right? Yeah. He, he's one of those guys that. Um, I think Gordon Lightfoot was one of those performers that you don't meet anybody who would say that that was their favorite performer. But he had two or three songs that are just kind of consistent backdrop songs in the memory of a lot of people's like of that era that ilk of the mid 70s for sure Uh, jake we went over several colts draft picks yesterday of the names on the list any of them interest you that maybe we have not gone over yet from the 12-man group you know I, i think the one that to me is of the most intrigue quite frankly is and i don't just say this because of his name is the lineman that they took late i think anytime that you get a guy that just has characteristics that were so unique you know just a huge body that is learning the position like a a high risk high reward not not let me say low risk high reward type guy that's of intrigue and jake witt kind of kind of feels that way if you will um we talked about brents and downs we talked about and we'll talk about the players from northwestern how about Daniel Scott out of California? That that to me felt like a stretch is probably the wrong word, but a guy that they're just going, if I'm not mistaken, Kevin, the narrative on Daniel Scott is like kind of like when they took TJ Green out of Clemson. Like, let's just see what he can do. Yeah, I would say the biggest difference there between him and TJ Green is and there's no way to say this outside of disparaging TJ Green would be maturity. Um, Daniel Scott, if he were in the NBA draft, he probably doesn't even hear his name called. And I say that because he will turn 25 years old in October. That is an incredibly old prospect. 
uh, in the draft. He began his college career at Cal in 2017. Obviously, the extra COVID year. You do have some older prospects in this draft class. Hendon Hooker, we talked about. Even Will Levis is a little bit on the older side. But Daniel Scott, when they took him in the fifth round, um, you know, pretty much my initial thought was, oh, wow, this just screams special teams. Like Everything about him is a special teamer. Uh, new special teams coach Brian Mason. I, I just assumed that that's kind of where he would fit into this group. Now, Chris Bout after the draft, was a little bit more like, no, 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 we think he's got a defensive chance, which, again, makes sense because you wouldn't take a, just a pure special teamer in round five. To me, that's a little early for him. Uh, and, you know, if you look at safety, you know, they got a couple young guys. Rodney Thomas II had a great rookie season, especially for a seventh-round pick. We'll see about Nick Cross. You know, it was pretty much a redshirt year. He, he started the season, then got benched. And never Nick, really got on the field. Nick Cross kind of feels to me like Daniel Scott. Am I off base there? But again, I would slot Cross and TJ Green, Jake Moore into like the uber young, we're going to try and tap into the traits. Whereas Daniel Scott is 24 years old and a little bit more of a I don't know, finished product sounds too harsh, but you kind of know what you're getting with him. Whereas Cross and Green, you're, you're trying to project a little bit more. Uh, but that safety room, again, Julian Blackman's in a contract year. Rodney Thomas II is back. I assume those two start. Rodney McLeod, you know, he is not on the roster. He was a free agent. We'll see if he retires. Um, and then Nick Cross, I guess, would be that third safety on paper. Maybe Daniel Scott would be the fourth. So, um, yeah, a Cal defender there. Again, we'll turn 25 coming up in October. And probably, I don't know, out of all the draft picks, I just feel like he's the one that we probably won't talk about very much. How about Titus Leo? Yeah, not a lot of Wagner football players, right? Right. Uh, fourth ever in the history of their program. The Colts actually already have one on their roster. Chris Williams, a backup defensive tackle. Uh, Titus Leo is reminiscent of when um, they drafted EJ Speed back in 2019. EJ Speed is out of Tarleton State. EJ Speed had played like four different positions in college. Finally, had settled on linebacker. Um, Titus Leo plays multiple positions at Wagner. Finally, has settled in as a pass rusher. So, I think similar to Jake Witt with the last pick that they used in the seventh round, this is a dart at a board, at the board of a premium position, and they will see what they can get. You know, something that I think this team has lacked probably ever since really Robert Mathis led the league in sacks in 2013. And I guess Yannick Ngakwe, he honestly might have been the closest thing to it last year. The Colts just lack a pure speed edge rusher. Like the Colts' effective pass rushers. They've been trying rushers, to find that Kevin forever, right? Yeah, and the Colts, I mean, since Freeney and Mathis, they've been trying to find that. Yeah, and their best rushers are just kind of more power guys, right? Not necessarily speed guys. And so I think that is the attempt here. And if you're going to take this approach, which I'm not saying that I highly endorse twelve draft picks, I'm probably more of a you know, it's a little, you need more high end quality than just quantity. But, you know, I, I get why Ballard does it. He says the draft's a crapshoot. Let's just try and get as many chances as we can get at the board. If you're going to have 12 draft picks, these are the types of picks that you should be making late. Throw a dart at a board at a position that matters. See if this guy from a small school has traits that you like. And could they possibly turn it into something of a diamond in the rough? Right. You know, you brought up the name Denzel Good yesterday with with uh, Jake Witt. You know, that's kind of the thinking here. Obviously, when you think about day three picks in this franchise, Robert Mathis certainly stands out. That's what your effort is here of 
Why not? See if you can get something, uh, particularly for a skill set this team has lacked in a speed rusher. Kev, Robert Mathis started out, and I think it's easy to forget this because of how things went, but Robert Mathis started out as a special teams guy, right? And then, you know, you saw what became of his career. Are some of these players that are drafted, and this is an important area. I don't mean this is a snub at all. Do you get to a certain point in the draft where you're drafting guys, not necessarily because you like the position that they played and dominated in college, but because they look like guys that can be special teams players that then develop into positional players for you? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the hope with some of these day three picks. You know, when I look at Jake Witt and uh, Titus Leo, for example, can Jake Witt, Northern Michigan, Titus Leo from Wagner, both of their first years to me, just scream, put them on the practice squad and worry about them in 2024. And we brought this up yesterday. You know, I think we've been trained to get locked into this like, what is the 53-man roster? What does that look like? The NFL, really ever since COVID, and has continued to do it since, has adopted a bigger practice squad, a easier to kind of bring guys up off the practice squad for a game and then put them back on the practice squad and you don't risk them to waivers or free agency or anything like that. So I think teams are a little bit more willing to take these picks knowing they've kind of got a triple-A system in their own building, and that's the practice squad. Um, So the NFL, again, has adopted this really about three or four years ago. They continue to do it, and Chris Ballard has been a huge, huge user of it. I guarantee if you look at last year's like week one Colts practice squad, I'd say 70 to 80% of them ended up playing in a game last season and or they just used last year as a nice time to, okay, you get 17 weeks of practice, you get to learn, and in Witt's case, in Leo's case, they both would fall into the they just need development more than anything. You know, the... I've always been curious if you were to ask Chris Ballard or insert name of really any executive, and maybe it's different, Kevin, from franchise to franchise, but do is there a point in the draft where you say, look, we could sit here and act like we know the traits and the personalities and the X's and O's of every single player in the draft, but after pick 175, we are literally going with the guy that's just best athlete available. I you think you're I mean? almost seeing that in Leo and Witt. And this is something that I talked about. Correct, especially in Witt, right? And again, do that at positions that matter, Jake. Do that at positions that mean more. So much of the headline after the Colts draft was, oh my gosh, this is one of the most athletic drafting classes we've ever seen. And there's a lot of truth to that. But to me, that's not the big storyline from this Colts draft. The big storyline from this Colts draft, and obviously Anthony Richardson is the torchbearer for it, is that finally you have seen a commitment from Chris Ballard in a draft on positions that matter more than others. Look at the first four picks. Quarterback, corner, wideout, offensive tackle. You throw in a corner there, I think two picks later. Like It is about time that this franchise strayed away from taking a guard in the top 10, taking a linebacker in the top 40, taking a running back in the second round. That has gotten you to the point of not winning a division title, to not being 
anywhere near close to the best team in the AFC South over the last six years. You've got to alter your approach. And I think if you are a Colts fan looking at this draft, I think that's what you should um, like the most about it. Again, it's a chance at quarterback, which speaks for itself, and we've talked that ad nauseum here over the past few months. But to me, it extends deeper than quarterback. You are finally making a serious commitment to the positions that matter. What is your biggest race day tradition? I go or with, build up not even race day tradition, but month of May tradition. Other than drinking a Coors banquet, sure. Well, not just one coming up on Carb Day. Um, so I made a couple of different Calcuttas for the 500. I enjoy that getting together with some friends and family and taking part in a little snake draft. Okay, uh, that's always now. When uh, you say snake draft, are people literally picking, or are you picking out of a hat? Uh, so the order for round three is out of a hat, but. I guess you do pick your order for round one and two. So, for example, if you pick, you know, the third selection, uh, then you would have the third selection in round one, and then as we snake back to round two, you would have, what, the 19th, 20th? Right. I'm trying to do the math on that. You know, Rosie and I started last year, Jake. We came out to Qualls, and I would like to get her out to the track again, like one, if not two days a year. If the Grand Prix is good weather, I think we might mound it up next Saturday. Yeah, I think the Grand Prix is a really good chance for kids – and where should I go mound-wise? Should I go the turn one, which would be what, turn four of the oval? That's probably the most action. Or should I go over by where you are, kind of the other end of the road course? That's a that's a really good question. Um, should I, we take this off air so it's not too crowded for me? What's that? Should we take this off air so it's not too crowded? <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> I, I think the, the viewing mounds near the museum – for kids would be the most fun because there's the most you know you have the flags on top of the museum or near the museum going you have the museum itself you have the the mounds are really good to roll down quite frankly i see kids doing a lot of that perfect but you see the cars on the or oval. may after a few i mean they're banquets. going that's <laughs> they're going the wrong direction on the oval but they do get to see what they look like on the oval while as well seeing them kind of navigate turns so just from like a, an an atmosphere of the senses i would say turn two would be better i guess what i love about it is just like this is our thing like this is indianapolis's the state of indiana's thing and you just kind of grow up with it i have totally vivid memories of kindergarten kevin bowen drawing jock villeneuve right and then buddy lazier and back-to-back years and thinking i knew everything in the world about sports yeah i mean you're right and like that is that is like one of my biggest memories from childhood i love driving around town and seeing the flags outside of everybody's house i can't i think today actually i'm going to go over and get my credential um over there at 16th and georgetown so i just i eat it up and, and i cannot sleep whatsoever on saturday whatever it is may 26th i can't sleep at all i wake up and i am so happy maddie looks at me that morning and goes you're literally smiling more than you did on our wedding day it's you know I, I think the thing that Kevin makes it so special to me, and I understand and I totally respect that that this has changed a little bit. But for a lot of people, Indianapolis was a city. Bef- you know, we we are we remember it before the Colts were in town and before the Pacers were a player. Now I know the Pacers in, as an ABA franchise were the best there was, but in terms of the national scale. The ABA did not was not the talking point that the NBA was, and the Pacers were not an NBA talking point until the early to mid nineties, and so 
if you grew up of my age range in the 70s or 80s and you were a kid from Indianapolis and you went on spring break or you went on vacation to Florida or wherever and said you were from Indianapolis, people said to you, oh, the Indy 500. And it's what we were known for. And as a civic pride, you took pride in the fact that we were not only known for that, but we were known for something that no one else was. There were a lot of cities that were known for the NFL. There were a lot of cities that were known for the NBA or Major League Baseball or college basketball. But no one really could claim and certainly no one else could claim the largest single day spectator sport in the world. I mean, that was, it was just such a badge of honor. And then with that comes the traditions that, you know, I've got a thing right now and you can go on my Twitter at Jake Query, J-A-K-E-Q-U-E-R-Y, where I ask people for names of loved ones that they've lost in the last year that had a love for the 500. I love that you do that. And and we do that um, each year in the pre-race. I list off, I wish I could read everyone's name. I apologize that I cannot. But it is, it's touching to see the number of people that send a thing like, oh, my uncle Ed took me out there. He was the first one to introduce me to it and, and cut out names out of the paper or show me the speed charts or just simply show me how to pack my cooler to get not one but two ham sandwiches in there. You know, all the little traditions that go into it are just what make it so special. And I'm just so glad that today it looks more like May than yesterday because it was hard to get into it yesterday. <laughs> and you know what? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday will hopefully feel like what it's going to be closer to race day. One uh, one confession I do have to make about the month of May, and I cheated a little bit. I started this kind of in late April. So basically the nightly routine in the Bowen household is, you know, we have Rosie that I guess is almost three and Max is about nine months. So basically, you know, I'll take one kid to put to bed. Maddie will take the other one. And we, and we usually... Um, um, you know, alternate. Alternate. Thank you. That, that's the word I was looking for. Um, I really prefer to put Max down during this time because you know, once Max falls asleep in my arms, what I like to do is just kind of stay in his nursery for about uh, ten more minutes. And what do I dial up? I dial up the final ten laps of past five hundreds. Really? Pop in the headphone. That's pretty cool. And watch that. And you know what? I don't know if this is legal, Jake, but we've got a few YouTubers out there that have done a great job of syncing your guys' radio call to the video of it. I That seems to be a new addition on, on YouTube. So I have been a big fan of that. Gosh, you had one call. I've done the last three races, so I'm back to 01 or 2000. I've, I was going to text you. You had a really good one the other night. I was trying to think of it. Uh, but I did watch. I guess I'm back to 2000. Are they... I, are they when you're listening to the radio and you're looking at the video, does it sync at all, or do you think to yourself, "This guy's making this up"? <laughs> well, no, it actually syncs. It actually syncs pretty well. Um, I, I was thinking back to the COVID race, though. The COVID race was so weird. Tell me about it. You know, and, and watching that. But gosh, you had a good call. Maybe it was was it Pagano and Rossi going back and forth? That might have been one of them, but yeah, that is kind of now a nightly routine. So, you know, when I get the max nights, that means, all right, let's dial up YouTube and see what we can find here. You know, each year during the race broadcast, because I've listened to plenty of old races, and when I say old, I mean like the 50s and 60s, and I love the theater of the mind of it, and I, I don't really, you know, I'm not naive to think that 60 years from now people will be listening to the 2023 indy 500 i don't know that but i do try to i will say this kevin the only thing that i conscientiously do in calling the race the only thing that i think ahead of time the only two things number one is the names and then the other one is at some point i try to describe the weather 
because yeah. I always envision sunsplashed is, is a good phrase you use. Yeah, or you know, cloud cover or the you know whatever. But I'm trying to picture the guy 60 years from now that's listening to that race, putting his kid to bed, and wondering to himself, I wonder what that day was like. And so that I try to throw that in there yeah, at no, least once per race. You do, as your entire team does a beautiful job in painting. Well, they do better. Not. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Jake, in a way, I feel like I've looked in the mirror like, I don't know, maybe 10 times since the Colts took one of these two Northwestern Wildcats on Saturday, and I've just said to myself, Ade Tamawa Adabare. That's, now say it again. Ade Tamawa Adabare. Tommy, yep. Yeah, Tommy, after that first reference. That's what he told us on Saturday. Um, and, and maybe I've done that to maybe prepare myself for our next guest. That would be the head coach of the Northwestern Wildcats, Pat Fitzgerald. Coach, if you're going to grade me, 1 to 10, how'd that sound? Yeah, that was excellent. Not bad for a first-timer. I, I would I would uh, strongly recommend the Tommy. Uh, I, I think you'll be able to uh, do a great job with that. But, man, oh, man, did the Colts get two great, great guys and – Unbelievable players, man. We're fired up. Okay, now, Coach, I want you to grade me as well, uh, and I'll do my best here. Give me an A to F score. Evan Hull. <laughs> Is it was that Hull or Hull? Hull. H U L L. Hull. See, where are you from? Like Cleveland? I mean, oh boy. Right oh here boy. in Indy, baby. You know what? And now, now, here's the thing, Coach. Be careful because like an hour ago, I was like, you know, this Pat Fitzgerald seems like a cool dude. Like, he'd be a cool guy to hang out with. And then here we are. We're off to this right now. Evan Hull. Uh, Did I say it wrong? Or is it Hall? Yeah, no. Listen, guys. Love it, man. It's good stuff. Yeah. Listen, uh, you're going to really like these two guys. I think, number one, you know, I got to tip my hat to Chris and, and his staff. I mean, it, unbelievable job that they have always done. Uh, I've known you know Chris for a long time, and you know you want to talk about being thorough, uh, doing it the right way in, in, in the evaluation process, uh, and, and I think being really convicted with uh, you know the decisions they make are best for the organization. So we're we're incredibly thankful uh, to have two of our guys going to Indy, and um, I, I think the community more than anything is going to really enjoy the impact that both Tommy and Evan have because they'll be more than just football players; they're terrific men. Uh, they're going to be great teammates, and they're going to be uh, involved and engaged in the, in the community. By yeah. the way, does Cleveland have an accent? I, Chicago has an accent. Now, Indianapolis no, no, has kind right. of a – Indy's got a subtle twang. I, I'll admit that. Like, I go places and people are like, you from the south? I'm like, what, are you kidding me? I'm from Indianapolis. <laughs> I'm thrown off here. Uh, hey, um, Coach, let me ask you. You know, it's probably interesting, and, and I'm curious your standpoint on this because, um, you know, look – I. I do think you. I think you're a heck of a football coach, and I think Northwestern has shown that. I, I know last year, probably in wins and losses, it wasn't where you wanted to be, but I feel like players coming out of Northwestern are going to be pretty sound football players. So, is it ever of surprise to you which players are drafted and which are not? In other words, do you feel that there really is much transition between the college game and the NFL game, and what guys are expected to do? Yeah, I think it's a huge transition. You know, number one, I lived it 
right, as a player, and now let, let, let me not insult any guy that's played in the NFL. I mean, I did not have the athleticism to even belong in a camp back in the 90s, but, um, you know, it's it's the 1% of the 1% of athletes that play our game, and um, it's just you, you have to be absolutely – uh, relentless in everything you do as far as being a player on Sunday. And some guys are just incredibly talented and they can get away with it for a while, but uh, more times than not, it comes back to your attitude, you know, what type of teammate you are, uh, you know, the relentless work ethic that you have. And then you got to be able to make plays and play within the framework of what you're being asked to do. And uh, are there more guys that I wish got opportunities? Absolutely. But it's simple economics, man. It's supply and demand. Uh, there's a finite number of jobs uh, in the NFL on the field, and uh, there's so many guys that want the opportunity. So, you know, when, when number 259 got picked, a young man from Toledo, or they, it's Mr. Irrelevant. I don't know. 259 guys got their name called. I think it's pretty freaking relevant, man. I mean, it's a, it, it's a big deal. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to see our guys. We have four get drafted this year and, and uh, three more that are getting camp invites. So, uh, you're right. Our record wasn't what it was, what we wanted to be for sure. Uh, but uh, we're not as far away, maybe as our record indicates. Losing five one-score games and a couple games by two scores, we're we're not that far away. And uh, you know, excited to get back to India and play in the championship. You know, we've been there two out of the last five years, and uh, there's no doubt that's a driving force of every team in the Big Ten. Uh, he is the second longest tenured coach in the Big Ten. Pat Fitzgerald with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Again, two draft picks for the Colts coming up on day three from his program. Let's get into those two, both of them captains. Tommy, you know, set the combine on fire. If it wasn't for Anthony Richardson, it was probably Tommy, the guy that, you know, drew the most headlines there. We're talking 284 pounds, and he ran a faster 40 than the draft picks the Colts made at corner and wide receiver just ahead of them. Uh, how do you see his best fit at the next level? Yeah, yeah, I really think he's going to move inside and go, you know, progress full time to becoming a three technique defensive tackle. Um, you know, we were in the process of doing that. You know, Tommy came in as a developmental guy, meaning just he was a little weight-wise undersized. And, man, you want to talk about uh, uh, just absolute stud and his work ethic in the weight room. And um, that he had great traits and great talent coming in, but it was just his relentless work ethic that, uh, you know, really led him to that, that type of performance. Got better every year, and now that he's going to focus on one position, uh, the sky's the limit for him. And so – you know, some organizations want guys already at 330 pounds and, you know, so on and so forth. You know, I think the Colts are going to be able to, you know, add, you know, just a handful of more pounds as as he progresses through his career. And, you know, you're going to probably see a guy in a year, 295, 300 pounds, that's, that's running for something fast and uh, hopefully having a party in the backfield in the AFC. Okay, then Evan Hull, um, you know, he's a guy that I feel like from a pass-catching standpoint, the Colts need to try and tap into that. Obviously, Jonathan Taylor speaks for itself, but kind of getting that third-down guy. Hull certainly caught the ball out of the backfield for you, but it almost seems like you're selling him short if you only label him as that. I mean, 2,000 rushing yards, you know, over the last couple years. Yeah, complete back. He can do it all. He's, uh, number one, just like Tommy, but high-level football intelligence. Uh, We asked him to line up and motion and shift, and we – he had to do a lot from the standpoint of not only learning running back and, and where his reads were and his cuts, but then protections. Uh, and then, you know, being able to line up anywhere on the field and then the entire route tree and then, you know, coverage concepts. So, uh, you know, as far as that, I think you're, you're going to check the box of a young man that uh, is very hungry, you know, under-recruited, 
you know, we offered them late, uh, state champion, hundred meters wrestler, uh, in high school. And then, uh, you know, humbled to a point where I think you're going to see him be willing to do whatever the team asks him to do. If it's special teams, if it's third, whatever is needed, that's what you're going to get from Evan. And again, like you said, two guys that were captains for us that, um, you know, are just really special people beyond, uh, you know, their amazing traits on the field. Coach, I want to go back to Pat Fitzgerald, the head coach at Northwestern, is our guest on the Payless Sigurds Hotline. I want to go back to uh, Adebore. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, mm-hmm. In his background, you know, he was born and raised in Kansas City, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. but his parents come to the United States from Nigeria in the mm-hmm. in the 90s, which makes me feel really old, right? Um, but... I oftentimes feel like, and I want to make sure that I'm not romanticizing a story that doesn't exist, okay? But my thought process would be that this is a young man that, while he was born and raised in the U.S., he's seeing right underneath his own roof two people who understand the dedication and the work ethic and the sacrifice that goes towards being successful to be able to make a life for themselves in a new land. And that example carries itself for a young person, even when he has God-given athletic ability. Did you witness that? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think that'll be a great conversation for you guys to have with Tommy and let, you know, him share his thoughts. There's no doubt family is the foundation and uh, his parents are terrific. We try to get his next youngest brother. uh, He he decided to go to a school in Norman, Oklahoma. I don't know why he would have done that. I mean, he would have looked pretty darn good in purple too, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens in the portal world. But, uh, you know, I'll probably get charged with tampering now. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's a special family. And again, like like Evan, I mean, Tommy's the same way. I mean, just a he just you guys are going to love him. I mean, he's and the, and the organization is going to love him. I mean, this is a guy that wanted during training camp when everybody else was going back to take a nap. He wanted to watch film with with the coaches. I mean, he's um, he's really a special guy. And you know, we moved him around a lot. And now that he's going to play just one position. It's going to be great. But the family, I'd, I'd rather have him, you know, really elaborate for you guys. And I think all of your listeners and everybody in Indianapolis will be blown away. Coach, I want to go back to something you said at the start um, and, you know, maybe any conversations you had with Chris Ballard during this process on these guys. Because, you know, I remember when the Colts drafted Anthony Walker in 2017. I mean, you talk about someone that I think Ballard said that he's going to take his job one day just in how intelligent and how important he was for you guys. And obviously he's had a great NFL career. So what did you tell Chris or anybody associated, I guess, with the Colts when they asked you about Tommy and Evan? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, again, like like most organizations, but you know, the, when the when the Colts come through here, um, you know, they're area scouts, there's, and then then you could tell, you know, when all of a sudden it goes like director of college scouting, and you know, it it starts to move up the uh, the, the corporate ladder there, so to speak, in the scouting world. Uh, you know, they're always incredibly thorough, and uh, for us, what makes it so fun working with um, you know our colleagues in the NFL regarding our players is it's it's so easy to be honest you know it's it, we don't have you know anything to hide with our guys and so the conversations are pretty straightforward and um you know it was it was like hey listen this kid's not even you know with tommy in particular he's not even close to what he's going to be uh and if 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 he does declare what he ended up doing uh you're going to see someone who's going to put up pretty special numbers what those are specifically we don't know but i, I we th- we thought everybody would be impressed and then 
like I said, you know, Tommy first goes to the Senior Bowl and just shows off his explosiveness and his violence and his physicality, um, and, and then goes to the Combine and puts on, you know, one of the best, if not the best ever, uh, as a defensive tackle from a standpoint of performance. So um, he's just scratching the surface. He, he's uh, he's going to be a guy that we believe is going to play for a long time. But Chris is a pro's pro. He and his staff are phenomenal. Uh, there's there's nobody better in the business and. It's just been a privilege to get to know him and his staff and, and the way the Colts organization goes about their business. When they go about that business and asking you, Pat Fitzgerald, about players, I mean, whether it be these two or other players, maybe they even ask you about guys you you saw on the opposite side from around the league, I don't know, but what percent of the evaluation that the Indianapolis Colts do do you feel like is non-football related in other words getting to know the person that they're getting and the commitment very high the percentage would be very high you know you'd have to ask chris specifically and you know kind of what they and how they want to do it but it is very evident uh the the culture looking for a very specific person uh they want to create a culture in the organization that, that i think starts just me as an outsider uh it starts with having just incredible people uh, in the organization, and that, at that core is the locker room. And um, you know, we, we've been we've been very fortunate. You mentioned Anthony Walker. I mean, it's you guys have drafted three of our captains. And, you know, I'll just say that. You know, I think that that's value. I think that there's you know a lot of synergy in the way that we look at high school recruits, the same way that kind of Chris and his staff look at look at you know college prospects. That it's you know there, there's there's certain things you can see on tape, but more importantly, when things get challenging or things get successful. You know who is this young person going to be, and, and they usually revert back to that, regardless. And um, you know, you guys have taken three of our best that I've ever had the privilege to coach, and I look forward to these two guys making an instant impact in the organization this year. You know, one of the guys too, while we have you here, coach, that I wanted to ask you about, um, just because he's from the area, and, and I think his story is fascinating because it was so circuitous. And Hunter Johnson was a young man that was the number one recruit in the country coming out of high school, goes to Clemson, gets in the portal, goes to Northwestern, portals back to Clemson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was he – I don't mean this to be harsh on him. I don't know the young man. I'm not going to say was he misevaluated. Yeah. But, but how does one go from being, the, you know, the number one can't-miss player to a guy that is essentially each place he goes kind of vying for time? Yeah, I, well, I, I think if there's a lot of unfair expectations put on young people in high school. I think that's number one. Uh, very, first of all, an unbelievable young man. I mean, incredible. And, um, you know, recently married and uh, was awesome while he was here. And, uh, you know, earned the starting job twice. You know, to his credit, he was, you know, right there. And it just it just didn't work. And, you know, I got asked kind of the same questions, and, and I'll, I'll project it back to me as, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a two-time All-American. I don't get drafted. You know, things happen. It just, it sometimes it just, you know, it just, it just happens where it just doesn't all work out. But he put everything into it that he could. I, I hope and pray that he has no regrets. Um, and I think he just gave everything he had. And you know, as as all of us end up eventually doing to play this great game, we we get welcome to the greatest retirement club in america and that's called retired football players of america association and uh for some of us it's grade school some of it's high school some of it's college some of it's pros and um hunter is a great person and was a great player for us 
uh, and we were just thankful to have him be a part of our program. Well, I think the fact that he was welcomed back to Clemson shows that clearly there were no character issues there, right? I mean, you know no, what I mean? We wanted it, we, no, we wanted him to have him come back here, and, uh, you know, it was it was a great situation. I think he kind of went down there and was a, a pseudo-GA. I know there was a very significant other in his life that was from Clemson, South Carolina, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't move Northwestern to, to Clemson, so... <laughs> You know, it's like, dude, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think if you got both, the, the, or, or excuse me, all three of us, myself, Hunter, and Dabo in a room, we'd, we'd all, it would be a, one of those bro fests, you know, where we all, <laughs> you know, we all, I think we all love each other. And, and uh, we all, I know Dabo and I both think the world of Hunter. And, uh, you know, I'm just thankful he was in our program. And I'm thankful that he touched our, our lives. And I had a chance to coach his older brother, Cole, too. So, I mean, it, it's a great family. And, uh, he he did a great job for us and and uh, was an awesome teammate and just really thankful to have him be a part of our program. Lastly, I got to ask, Coach. I went to the Birmingham Barons game. I was in Birmingham for IndyCar over the weekend. Went to the, see the Birmingham Barons on Saturday. They're the Double A affiliate. Are, are they better right now than your White Sox as the Double A team? Uh, is that because of the Cleveland comment earlier? <laughs> <laughs> I just read your White Sox fan. I mean, I know you sang "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" at Wrigley, and then people yeah. are like, well, "Wait a minute, this guy's a Southside dude, so he's a White yeah. Sox guy." So yeah. I kind of, I kind of like the White Sox. They're struggling, but I kind of like going to games at, at, at yeah. the park there. Yeah, well, we call White. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think guaranteed right now. It's 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 been a little. It's been a little. I mean, I still names. say Comiskey, but I, you know. Comiskey. Yeah, my dad calls it Sox Park. You know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, man, I'm a I'm a Chicago fan. I mean, I've, I've got some buddies on the South Side that every time I see take me out to the ball game at Wrigley, uh, I get the hate text, you know, and and, and 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 I get it, and I love those guys, you know, they'll always be my boys. But uh, you know, we live in in, in, a, in a in a pretty cool place. I mean, we're going to play again against Iowa at Wrigley this year. Uh, we're getting ready to redo Ryan Field, and so we'll be you know, displaced for a couple seasons and, uh, you know, the T's are getting crossed and the I's are getting dotted, but it looks like Wrigley's going to be in the plan for that and maybe some other venues here around Chicago beyond Soldier Field. So um, I, I, I just, I, I told my boys, at some point in my life, I'm going to see a Red Line World Series where the Cubs play the White Sox and this, this city will go up for grabs. Don't think it's going to be this year, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that that is smart by you singing at Wrigley. NIL money, whether it's a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan, all counts the same for you. Listen, dude, if we had NIL in the 90s, man, come on. Yeah. I, I would have crushed it. You would have been banking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would have crushed it. Yeah, You'd be I set. Mean, yeah. Think about, think about that statue Peyton Manning has. I mean, she's probably <laughs> on the building, you know, it's, you know, with the way Tennessee goes about this thing. But, yeah, no, it's it's great. It's awesome. And, uh, you know, all the all the football fans in Indy, you know, I'll, I'll say this. We've had the privilege of playing the Big Ten Championship twice. And uh, it, it's been awesome. And the hospitality, uh, the venue is incredible. Uh, it, it truly is a destination uh, that we all are fighting for in the Big Ten. And uh, I, I can't thank everybody down there enough for the great experiences we've had and, and look forward to fighting our tail to get back. You know, it's uh, it's something special to be a part of it once, to be a part of it twice was surreal. But the next time we, we're, we're there, we need to get we need to get the dub. I mean, I'm getting tired of being, uh, you know, number, I feel like kind of, uh, you know, they call me number two. You know, I don't. Hey, you, got, like you guys hung in there pretty well a couple of years ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you're not first, you're last, right? And I was last last year, so I'm tired of that garbage too. But uh, you know, it's 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 a great hub for for the Big Ten championship, and I uh, just appreciate Upbeard's hospitality, Coach. Whenever we have a guy on here that I that I just feel like is a cool dude, I always say. I was invited to my PBR party. I'm always like, you want to just come over and like, we'll just hang out and have a PBR and have a PBR party? In your case, you're Chicagoan, so I'll make it an old-style party. Diet Cokes are perfectly sufficient if you're not a beer guy. But, <laughs> yeah, I'll give but, but like, beer. Yeah, I, I, I think like you'd be fun to have an old-style with. So if I'm in Chicago, we're going to have an old or, or if you come for the Big Ten Championship game, and because I know you have all kinds of free time, then we'll yeah. do an old-style party. Yeah, I'm only coming when we're playing. It's like I, you know, I get, we get to go to the Rose Bowl as Big Ten coaches, and I haven't gone since I played. It's like... I don't eat in and out burger. Like we got to earn that stuff, you know. When I go out California recruiting, but uh, I, I'm in, man. Let's let's do it, and uh, we, I, I'd love to do it. And let's have a find a great charity and, and do a little fundraiser. Maybe we'll do a watch party or something like that. We'll have some fun and get after it, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll Uber home. It'll all be good. That yeah. is a hell of an idea, right there. Pat Fitzgerald, head coach of the Northwestern Wildcats, again, coach of a couple of Colts draft picks here in 2023. Coach, can't thank you enough. Great stuff, and uh, good luck this fall. All right, guys, thanks a lot. And to all of our Cat fans in Indy, appreciate your support, too. Go Cats and go Colts. Thanks, guys. All right, good Tuesday morning to you. Got a nice-looking start to this day here in Indy. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Temperature-wise, though, probably going to be a bit chilly uh, and then warm up later in the week. Speaking of later in the week, he will be back in Indianapolis coming up Thursday night. First rookie minicamp. Practice for Anthony Richardson will be Friday, and to get more into Anthony Richardson and a big part of his development, Will Hewlett, uh, Quarterbacks Collective. He's been working with Anthony for the past few months. He joins us now. Will, good morning. Good morning, guys. Appreciate having me on. Yeah, appreciate the time. Um, if you know, you obviously have been pretty much the quarterbacks coach for Anthony Richardson post Florida here. If we would have had this conversation last Tuesday, and I would have said to you, Anthony Richardson will be a Colt coming up, your level of surprise would have been what? Uh, not very high. Um, yeah, I was very confident. Just uh, if a certain certain things fell into place in the first and second pick, um, that he was going to be a Colt for sure. Will, in working with him, before we get to some of the areas that need work about Anthony Richardson, let me give you this platform and let you run with it. Yeah. If you were to close your eyes and envision a play in the National Football League where the game is on the line and you are watching Anthony Richardson under center for the Indianapolis Colts and he makes a play that has Joe Buck marveling on television and you break out in a sly grin and say to yourself, that's exactly what I knew he could do and why he was selected fourth. That play unfolds how? Uh, there's going to be some form of pressure uh, because that's what we do with young quarterbacks. We pressure young quarterbacks. He is going to take palm in the pocket. Uh, probably climb, make a little move, and then throw the ball, I don't know, 65 plus yards down the field with ease uh, on the money over the shoulder for a touchdown. That's how it's going to unfold. 
And, uh, yeah, I, I, he does that, and he does that very well. So is the ability for Richardson to extend time in the pocket most based on, A, his unique ability to feel pressure around him and then know where to slide, B, his massive physical size that just makes it difficult for him to be brought down, or C, his arm talent that allows him to throw through angles that others would not? Uh the all of the above, um, but I think if we're, you know, his uniqueness in the pocket and his presence there, I think is something that's probably underrated um, or underappreciated, maybe. Uh, I don't know, some people have talked about it, but often when you have a quarterback that is a threat um, from a running standpoint and has the ability to kind of break off explosive plays with their feet, um, you know, and then maybe put into a category of like accuracy issues that we overlook some of the other things that I think we would grade highly, um, regardless of style of play. And so, pocket movement for me has always been one of the things that you can see on film. His presence and awareness, you know, he keeps his eyes downfield, he doesn't get flustered. Um, has been a very high, um, I think, comfortable trait for Anthony. Yeah, poise was something Chris Bauer mentioned last Thursday night when the Colts took him as little to no worry for the Colts. Again, Will Hewlett is with us, uh, quarterbacks coach for Anthony Richardson uh, over the past few months, four on-field sessions each week for them. Will, it seems the deep ball is really of no concern. It's more of the short stuff with Anthony Richardson. So uh, just fundamentally, what have you been trying to get him to work on uh, since his career ended at Florida? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a couple things from a technical standpoint, and I think it's 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 important to say that we're you know in in this process um, we're we're going to shy away from uh, yes, like were there missed throws that that didn't go the way they you know should have gone that look, look, look somewhat simple. Um, and and what the irony is, if you dig through everyone's film, you can find a bunch of those on from other quarterbacks, but. Um, you know, so there was this narrative we had to kind of clear up, and this and some fun things fundamentally we had to clear up from a, from just a consistency standpoint. Um, he is, uh, you know, obviously he's still young. Um, he's, you know, not 21 yet, and um, so there's just a volume of repetitions uh, that that he still needs to get in. And I think he's, he's, you know, we've accelerated that process considerably. Um, but we wanted to clear up some of the mechanics on the front side of his throw, just be a little bit more controlled with um, his lower body, have more awareness. Uh, I think one of the problems that a lot of quarterbacks have, and, you know, it's, it's just the dynamic of, of um, you know, football. Um, it, it's hard to be a specialist in throwing mechanics as a team coach. Um, so often things you think, well, why are the coaches coaching? They don't have time. Um, and that's why I have a job is because I have time in the off season to work through these things. So, you know, sequencing and, and areas that kind of clear up um, his ability to repeat. And then if he does make a mistake, that's kind of a mechanism to correct that mistake on the next rep. Uh, and that's just, you know, a little thought process. So I think, you know, years ago there was a little picture of Tom Brady going into, uh, you know, camp. And um, he had written on his on his uh, wrist uh, wristband, it was like, you know, rotate late, stay close. It was like three little reminding cues, right? And so our job is to provide those types of cues, help him come up with those cues that allow him to, you know, if he does miss, um, have a mechanism to kind of correct that pretty quickly. Have you had any conversations with Shane Steichen about, like, him fundamentally and, and what you have worked on and what the Colts will try and continue to work on? 
Um, Shane, I just had a, a brief interaction with while I was in um, uh, in Indianapolis in the combine. Uh, we didn't kind of jump into the fundamental side. Um, we have spoken out our team here with um, Tom Gramelli and Danny Thompson. Um, have spoken, you know, in detail and depth with the cult staff um, in terms of building a support system and, and, and understanding what we've done down here in very, very high detail. Uh, so there's a, you know, a smooth transition. It's not, you know, traditionally um, in, in football, the football world, you know, the outside coaches do their thing and the, and the team coaches do their thing. Uh, I think people are realizing that, you know, the, the quarterback coach, uh, the private quarterback coach and, and the quarterback have a relationship um, that's, you know, that's considerable and deep and, and that will usually last and it's where they're going to spend their time in the offseason. And so um, they've done a phenomenal job of even like down to like, hey, the nutritionist you use, um, you know, we want her information so we can fully understand how to support Anthony in this process going forward. Will Hewlett is our guest. He's with Quarterback Collective. He is the quarterback coach for Anthony Richardson. Will, I've got a two-part question here. Um, The first is this. Give me an aspect of quarterbacking that maybe is – like a natural instinct for a lot of quarterbacks that Anthony Richardson has yet to master. Good. Okay. Yep. Um, so I think um, probably the area that um, he has yet to master, but I think has made considerable um, um, progress on, and it was a very a major focus point going into the, the off season was um, really understanding how to throw different speed, um, uh, you know, different levels of velocity on on throws that are under 20 yards and below. And, and I think it was just, it's, it's fine-tuning the mechanics of his, his, his throw and then his awareness. And ironically, it's not that he was throwing the ball too hard on short throws, which you would think for a big arm quarterback. Is that frequently it wasn't that he was throwing it hard enough um, and he was kind of stuck in a little bit of a you know um, a gray area where he just you know had been told hey don't throw the ball hard uh, and that's a hard way to coach you you know that, that's a difficult um, uh, term for a quarterback to kind of swallow so how do I not throw it hard and so usually they could slow the throw down in, in ways that they probably shouldn't. So one of the things that we really spent time on was understanding, you know, actually how hard you can throw um, on, on shorter and intermediate routes. And then we're, especially when receivers were coming towards him, um, it, when he's able to throw them downfield or away from, you know, more of an anticipatory throw, that was never seemed to be the, an issue. It was ones where they were coming directly at him. And in his mind, he was trying to control and help them, you know, not bounce the ball off their face mask. And we kind of changed his mindset and attitude. And he even spoke about it at the combine, kind of like, hey, it's my job to throw it. And if I throw it hard, they've got to get used to it, uh, something along those lines. And so that was an area I think that he's gotten considerably better at and will continue to improve at. And you'll see that in his game. Okay, so give me an area then. The other side of it for you, Will Hewlett, it would be this. Give me an area that for most quarterbacks is a real challenge that you were surprised that it seemed to be completely natural to Anthony Richardson. Yes, 20 yards and above um, downfield on any outbreaking left or right um, or in-breaking throw 
Um, he was an absolute natural. Um, one of the throws at the combine is, is the uh, old dagger route, which is essentially an 18 to 20 yard dig in breaking throw from the, from the outside wide receiver. And, and the, the way that you're taught to throw this ball in the NFL, it's, it's not a, a you know, line drive, rip it as hard as you can. It is throw it one to two yards outside the hash. You throw it off a specific time. And the receiver has to intersect that point um, at that moment. And so it's a combination of, you know, of, of, a, of a hard breaking route. His ability to place that ball, and I think it was evident in the combine, I actually had an NFL coach, um, but I was watching the combine in the stadium, turn and look at, he knew that I coached Anthony, turn and look at me and literally with his jaw on the floor after he threw three dig, dig routes, in-breaking routes, and they were the best in-breaking digs at the combine, in my opinion. Um, I don't think it was televised, so I was a little upset that that part of it was missed, but those were three of his you know, best throws, um, and he's just a natural at that, where a lot of guys have to really struggle with with um, you know placement timing, and then again down the field outbreaking routes. Just a really fantastic job of placing the ball in a position where that guy's going to be able to get it. The defensive back isn't. Does he utilize his mobility and size to facilitate his passing, or does he utilize his passing to facilitate his mobility? Uh, that's a great question. I think um, depending on the situation, really is, is, is you know I know that one thing about Anthony is that if it's if it's a down and distance situation and he's got to get the first down and he's going to get it with um, his mobility or even his one, one unique trait that Anthony has is he has the ability to, we actually measure this, but sustain a high level of speed with uh, additional weight attached to him. So he's like a diesel truck when he runs and you'll see it on film. He'll carry people. Um, and so when he's got to move the chains, then it's going to be, he's not afraid or worried about doing that with his lower body. Now, obviously, moving into the NFL, we want to be conscious of, you know, not taking unnecessary contact, making sure we're developed as a, a, a passer first. Um, but I think depending on the situation, he's going to rely on what he needs to. I think games in college sometimes um, this past year, you know, he was unsure of which side he should focus on. And I think that led to a little bit of the inconsistency early on in the year when he really just bought in and into what he was as a, as a, as a thrower, as a runner, as a passer, as, a, as a, an operator. Um, his game play went through the, through the roof and he just got better and better every week. Again, uh, Will Hewlett is with us, the quarterback coach for Anthony Richardson here over the past few months. He's with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Will, um, you know, I, I'm sure this is probably a challenge for you at, at times, but like, how difficult is it to want to instill these changes, know that they need to have some fundamental changes for Anthony, but you don't want him to get to play like too robotic? You, you've, you've brought up the word natural a lot. I mean, there are a lot of natural instincts to him that obviously are very gifted. So where is that balance in trying to not get him to be too robotic, but obviously make some changes? Yeah, I think that's the, um, I, I think, and maybe the, the, the plug here for what we do um, that's the art form in, in this draft process. Um, and that's why we had a lot of success with, uh, you know, last year we had Brock Purdy. Um, and, and so understanding what to do and how much to do, there is a very fine line, right? Because you don't want them going into an, uh, a competitive environment, um, you know, overthinking what they're doing. Now, the irony is, is we are preparing for a dance recital, essentially, right? Like, it's not real football, and I think that's important to identify. But 
it is important for coaches to pull back the, the curtains and kind of see what's under, you know, behind the scenes there. And, and you want to see people throw in person and see how the ball comes off and see the you know, intricacies or, or um, you know, different differences in quarterback to quarterback. So for us, it was really uh, making a conscious effort. You know, it, I have to I have a very short amount of time to get to know someone in terms of how they react to coaching and, and how they, um, you know, and how I understand, you know, their little nuances of like, okay, that's, that's when he's excited. That's when he's frustrated. Um, so with Anthony, the good thing was it wasn't large mechanical changes. There was just a lot of it was having more awareness brought to certain areas. Um, it was being in a very specific focused routine that allowed him to be, have consistency and build on everything that he was doing. Um, and, and so at certain points leading up to the combine, you know, the, the Friday before the combine, we do our, uh, our dry run through. And I literally tell him, I'm like, but I'm not going to coach you once today. You know, if you miss, we're moving on. And uh, I, I remember that day, he didn't miss a single throw through our walkthrough. And he, at the end of it, was like, I'm going to blow this thing up, speaking about the combine. Um, and, and so he knows, the one great thing about Anthony, too, that you'll see, you start at the pro day, start at the combine, you'll see them big moments. He's a showman. Um, like, you turn the lights on, and that kid is going to step up to the plate, and, and just, he loves um, being in that, that pressure situation. He makes, he, makes, he makes, as a coach, there's a, a nerve level that I deal with, um, you know, that being being honest, right? And he makes you feel better about the environment you're in. So it, it's going to be fun to be his coach at the next level because, um, you know, it's going to be a, a good um, back and forth between those those guys and, and, and uh, you know, watching the preparation pay off um, on Sundays. All right, well, last one for me, and thank you for the time this morning. Again, from the Quarterbacks Collective, he is Will Hewlett. Um, Jim Mersey mentioned that at one point during the process, he called Shane Steichen and said, all right, Shane, tell me why you think you know, Anthony Richardson can become a pure passer. When you look at the completion percentage number at Florida, it's obviously not a pretty number. If Jim Mersey were to call you and say, why is that number going to improve, your answer would be what? You know, I think there's there's a, a couple levels to it, um, and and again, you know, I think Florida is in a the University of Florida. They're going through transition with coaches, right? Their first year new offense. Um, there's you know a lack of um, traditional explosive guys at receiver, um, and I think you know comparatively speaking, you look at the rooms of the Ohio States and the Alabamas and the Georgias, you know, the LSU's of the world. Um, this is a really, really talented dude catching the ball, and it's not to take any away from the, the guys that they're just young and, and, and experienced. Um, and Anthony, you know, was the most explosive player on the field, um, and he wasn't throwing to himself. So I think there's, you know, uh, a level, and everyone's going to have drop balls, everyone's going to have misses, everyone's going to have bonehead plays, right? And, and so you got to take that into account. But I think those levels were probably substantially higher. And, you know, he came out of the Mullen system. He was the first year in a new um, offensive system. You know, I think that, that wasn't really focused around, you know, pushing the ball downfield with easy pass sets, right? There are a lot of, like, you know, two tight end, one back or two back, one tight end, you know, more power run formations. Um, and, and they were learning about their, their staff was learning about their team just as much as Anthony was learning about the, the new offense. So there's, there's, <clears throat> 
you can you can easily point at the numbers and say, hey, uh, this wasn't as good as, as this team, this team, this team. And Ohio State and, and, and Alabama, those guys have been running the same system for years now. It's plug and play. Um, and, and so I think you'd find that the numbers would flip a little bit in different situations, but they weren't. So that's your job as a coach and a scout and an evaluator to really look at every single miss and every single decision and go, okay, like, how does, what does Anthony think about this? What does the staff think about this? And what do we think about that? And I think if you do that objectively, you look at the, um, him every single snap the right way, then you're gonna, you can't not look at the film and go, dang, like, we, we gotta, we gotta draft this guy. I don't know how we don't. Um, there's, there's no wrong decision in picking Anthony Richardson, um, uh, as high as he went. And, and, um, you know, I, I think they're, they're confident in that. And, and so am I. Will, lastly, and I probably should have asked this at the outset of the interview, so I apologize to give you this platform, but uh, Will Hewlett is our guest who was the quarterback coach for Anthony Richardson. Uh, If you could, how did your relationship in terms of coaching Anthony Richardson, what is the origin of that, and what other or how many other quarterbacks have you worked with that give you kind of the barometer by comparatively which to gauge Anthony Richardson? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. So for for Anthony – um, I had one interaction with him prior to his final season at the University of Florida. Um, a good friend of mine and um, training partner, his name is Danny Thompson, was was um, Anthony's uh, private coach during during his high school years and at Florida. Um, we also had a pretty strong. I personally had a pretty strong relationship with some of the staff at the University of Florida, um, and so there was there was a natural. Um, familiarity um, and I think Anthony knew that he, he liked um, the system based on the success that we'd had um, on the performance side with um, you know our, our performance part I think it's work it's a very reputable you know the guys that, that run that you know work with Matthew Stafford and um, and, and Brock Purdy and um, a bunch of uh, Gardner Minshew <laughs> Gardner's a guy that's also worked with that works with our, with our, our crew here um, so through that process, um, you know, it was one of those things where it just seemed like a natural fit for Ant to, you know, take a little 90 minute hike up to, to, to the Jacksonville area and start his off season training. And, um, that's kind of how that relationship, you know, grew and, and, um, you know, was, uh, really just a, a, a good fit that I, that I felt like that, you know, really benefited him, um, short term and long term. And then from a comparative standpoint, I think the only other person that I've seen that blows my mind when I see them throw the football um, is Caleb Williams at University of um, Southern California. I've uh, worked with him since they prayed. Um, and that's, that's a young man. Before I met Anthony, I, I said, I've never seen a better in-person thrower than that kid. Um, well, Ant did some things daily that I'm like, I have never seen anyone do that before. Um, so... There's not many. There's not many good comps out there. I think Josh Allen is an easy one to make, not because of the physical stature, the style of play. And that's probably a good one. Um, but it, I think Ant really is his own player, and um, y'all are going to get to see that uh, unfold this next fall. Again, rookie minicamp coming up on Friday. That'll be Anthony Richardson's first time on the field here in Indy. Will, great stuff. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. you know, I, I probably should start there. Uh, great stuff. Anthony seems like a really, really um, just – I think fans are going to appreciate him and how he's wired. Uh, confidence yet fully acknowledges the hard work is needed. That's a special quality. So uh, we are excited to watch it all unfold and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on.